1: I mentioned in the previous episode that the final two chapters in this epistle consist almost entirely of specific instructions from Paul to Timothy regarding how to deal with various groups of people within the church. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, the apostle spoke in a general way as to how the young pastor should relate to older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. Then, in verses 3 to 16, there is a longer section regarding a group of widows who appear to have been on the church payroll, for lack of a better term. They were being supported, and in return, it appears that they were playing a central role in the church's benevolent activities, to the extent that they were able to do so. Then, in verses 17 to 21, there are some instructions for how Timothy, as Paul's apostolic delegate, should relate to the elders that were engaged in in the oversight ministry at Ephesus. And then in verses 22 to 25, it appears that Paul is discussing how to identify, evaluate, and install new leaders to the work of the ministry. Chapter 6 carries on with that theme. Paul is continuing to instruct Timothy as to how he ought to relate to certain types of people in the church. And now in these first verses of chapter 6, he's talking about how to relate to those who are slaves. One of the absolutely marvelous things about the early church was how it served to challenge and even upend many of the social conventions of the Roman Empire. The church challenged how Roman men approached sexuality. It challenged how women were being treated, and it challenged how the poor were being treated, and particularly how poor slaves were being treated. If you know anything about ancient Rome, you know that there were a great many slaves. And historians tell us that a great many of those slaves were particularly attracted to the Christian gospel. The gospel said that all people were co-heirs with Jesus. They were all first-class citizens in the kingdom of God, regardless of gender, age, race, or economic standing. Well, of course, that was a very attractive message to women and slaves, which is why christianity was often referred to as a religion of slaves and women by the 1st century romans so the church was distinctly countercultural praise the lord and yet it did not aim to be scandalous or revolutionary and that is a very fine line indeed and so paul has some inspired wisdom here for timothy as to how to encourage slaves and masters to relate to each other within the household of God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." Teach and urge these things. Notice, first of all, the word honor. That is what ties this body of teaching in with what has gone before. Paul has talked about how to honor widows who are really widows, how to honor the elders who rule well. And now he talks about how slaves must honor their masters. I mentioned in the previous episode that our English word honor does not perfectly overlap with the Greek word timao which it translates here. The Greek word has the sense of reverence and respect as our English word does, but it also has the sense of giving people what they are due. Thus, in chapter five, it has to do with giving the widows the support they were due and giving the elders or pastors the remuneration that they were due. Well, here in chapter six, it has to do with slaves giving their masters the service and respect that they are due. It seems that some slaves may have assumed, and not entirely without reason, that now that they were joint heirs with Jesus, now that they were rich in the things of the kingdom, now that they were sons and daughters of Almighty God, they were justified in relating to their masters on a more equal footing. Becoming a Christian puts some steel into your spine. And now the question is how that steel ought to be manifested by the slave on Monday morning. Here, Paul argues that the Christian slave must not be known as rebellious or lazy or unmanageable as a result of having come to faith in Christ. This would serve to bring dishonor on the name of Jesus among those who were rich and powerful. And that is the reason given for these instructions. Look at the second half of verse 1. The slaves are to maintain a respectful attitude so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Here, we are reminded that Christianity is less about revolution and more about redemption. Paul's primary goal is to convert people in every class of human society. He does not despise the rich. He wants to reach the rich. And therefore, he counsels the slave to look at his slavery as an opportunity for mission and evangelism. Now, by the way, Peter gave slaves almost exactly the same counsel in 1 Peter chapter 2. He spoke to them about suffering the indignity and injustice of their situation in an attempt to win their masters to faith in Jesus Christ. He even went so far as to remind them of the suffering and indignity endured by Jesus in order to win their salvation. He said to them, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. Well, that's a very big ask, but the apostles were not afraid to make it. The priority for them was always on the salvation of the individual, whether it was the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving magistrate or the unbelieving master. Rather than rebellion or revolution, they always counseled their people to pursue redemption. Now, of course, that is not to say that the apostles wanted people to remain in slavery. They did not. Paul told slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21 that if an opportunity came up for a slave to gain his or her freedom, they should take it. But while you are in that condition, he said, think less about getting out and think more about reaching out to your unsaved masters, as well as to anyone else you might come in contact with while in that station. That is the courageous and mission-focused counsel that Paul shares here with Timothy. And then because Timothy was a bit of a timid soul, he adds a necessary imperative, teach and urge these things. It isn't good enough for you to agree with me on this, Timothy. I need you to open your mouth and teach it. I need you to establish this as the norm and expectation in your church. And I need you to push back against anyone who is saying anything different about this or about anything else we have discussed. That's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, some scholars differ here as to how we are to understand this particular transition in the letter. Some understand Paul as addressing yet another class of people in the church, the false teachers. Most, however, think that Paul is circling the landing strip, as it were, as he prepares to bring his letter to a close. So, for example, Donald Guthrie labels this section Miscellaneous Injunctions, chapter 6, verses 3 to 21, closed quote. And that seems to be the way that it reads to me. I think we do sometimes impose a level of structure on these letters that I'm not sure they originally had. A letter is not an essay. And as such, it is usually composed in a more natural and free-flowing manner. And so I think that Paul, having told Timothy to teach and urge these things, now returns to the main reason for writing the letter in the first place. There were people teaching and urging otherwise. So he comes back to that. And as a result, we get a little extra content here as to the nature and motivation of these false teachers. Their teaching does not lead to godliness, Paul says at the end of verse 3. Rather, it leads to arrogance, controversy, and quarreling. And of course, that's one of the major characteristics of false teaching, isn't it? It fails to produce the fruit of the Spirit, but rather produces people who are conceited who believe themselves to be holier than thou and who engage in constant theological warfare with people who are likely much closer to the path of Jesus than they themselves are. Be on guard against such people. At the end of verse 5, Paul tells us that these false teachers in Ephesus are motivated by greed and the love of money. Again, as I mentioned back when we were discussing chapter 3, it seems hard for a lot of people reading this today in our culture to imagine that anyone would go into the ministry for the money. But in Greco-Roman society, oratory was considered a form of entertainment, and those who were skilled at it could actually earn a very decent living. And that appetite for professional rhetoric did, in fact, infect the early church. You can hear that concern all over Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and... It seems we are encountering it again here. Beware of people who like to pontificate upon deep, mysterious things that they really do not understand. Beware of people who have a take on things that no one has ever heard before. Beware of people who claim to have found the key that unlocks all the mysteries of the Bible. And beware of people who stir up contention largely to display their skills as a theological pugilist. They are motivated by the money or by the number of page views they can generate or article clicks and post-likes, we might say, as we transpose this passage into a contemporary key. Have nothing to do with such people. Their motivations are suspect. And this leads Paul into a further discussion about wealth in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If you're motivated by money or fame, Paul says, then you'll always have to be saying something new or controversial. This is what caused the false teachers to get off track. They were chasing after the wrong things. The Revised English Bible is a slightly less literal translation than the ESV, but I think it captures exactly the sense of verse 6. It says, they think religion should yield dividends. And of course, religion does yield high dividends, but only to those who are content with what they have, closed quote. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. Whether or not you are content with the Christian gospel as it is depends largely upon whether you are content with what it offers. Difficulties now, but delights later. Hardships now, but happiness later. That's what Christianity is selling, Paul says. And if you understand that, then you are quite content to remain within it. But those who want to be rich now are often led astray. Verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Some scholars take from this section the idea that Timothy may have been more attracted to this false teaching that was going around than most of us are inclined to think. He may have been a bit of a closet mystic and a little bit inclined toward asceticism. That's why, perhaps, Paul would interrupt his own flow of thought to say, now make sure that you're drinking a little wine because of your stomach, Timothy. And, and, and so here, as for you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue the stuff of real religion, that may be so. Regardless, Paul here gives Timothy a strong command in the opposite direction. The New Testament often speaks about the pursuit of holiness and Christian growth in precisely this way. Turn away from this and turn towards that. Put off this and put on that. That's how you grow, isn't it? You stop looking at that and you start looking at this. You walk away from this and you begin moving towards that. It's all very practical and active, isn't it? And Paul means for it to be heard that way. He uses an athletic metaphor in verse 12, as he will do from time to time. If you want to be an Olympic caliber athlete, you can can visualize and meditate all you like. But if you don't walk away from the couch and walk towards the gym, if you don't walk away from the Big Mac and walk towards the salad bar, then you're never going to make it, are you? That's the idea here. Timothy is to distance himself from this whole approach that has been manifested by the false teachers. Their their delight in mysteries, their constant wrangling, their super spiritual asceticism, and their obsession with money. Walk away from all of that and walk towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Verse 12, he appears to refer to Timothy's baptismal testimony. He reminds him of how he started out in order to encourage him towards faithful perseverance in the same direction. That's what Christian faithfulness is, isn't it? A long obedience in the same direction, to paraphrase Eugene Peterson. Keep going. O man of God, and do not be dissuaded. Consider the courage and perseverance of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was not deterred in his mission as he made his way to the cross, but who rather embraced the cross and endured its humiliation and shame. You, my son, must be prepared to do the same. Now, having spoken about the love of money that motivated the false teachers, Paul is reminded to say a word to those in the church who happen to be wealthy. Note that. It is a sin to love money and to be motivated by money, but it is no sin to have money. Some people are just very good at making money and and they don't need to sin or break any laws in order to do it. Other people inherit money. God bless them. The church is helped by such people if they use their money wisely and faithfully. And that is what Paul says now. Look at verse 17. it's probably necessary to point out here what this passage isn't saying donald guthrie is useful here he says the approach to wealth is strikingly moderate there is no suggestion of denunciation closed quote that is true and it's probably necessary to articulate that again in our generation it is no sin to have money it is a sin to become arrogant as a result of your money it is a sin to trust in your money and it is a sin to be motivated by the love of money but it is not a sin to be wealthy. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich to be humble, to trust in God, to be active and busy in service. Being rich can make some people lazy. And so Timothy is to tell them that they mustn't live self-indulgent lives, golfing five times a week and taking numerous extravagant holidays. Rather, they are to be active in doing good. And they're to be generous and ready and eager to share. Young, enthusiastic pastors must be very careful not to despise the rich of this world. Many churches are funded almost entirely by godly, rich, generous people. Thanks be to God. It has ever been thus. Long may it continue. The widow's might is celebrated in the Bible, but so too is the largesse of Barnabas, who was obviously a man of substance. The Great Commission goes forward, fueled by both types of Christian giving. And it always has and always will do. We are not to berate the rich. We are to encourage them to look at their giving as a form of investment. Money given now will be given back to you with interest in the world to come. If you are a person of faith, then you will understand the opportunity that represents. And you will act accordingly. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Guard what you've been given and avoid what you know to be false. That's good counsel. Every pastor, every elder is a trustee. Our job is to pass on to the next generation the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are not innovators. We may sing new songs. We may play new instruments. We may sit on chairs instead of pews, but we may not change the good deposit of the essential Christian gospel. Our message is still the same. This is a trustworthy saying in our generation as in everyone before. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's our message, Timothy. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to your people. Preach it from every page of your Bible. Preach it until Jesus comes to take us home. That's your business, son. That's your calling. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.